Good everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Spark Your Fire. It's your Friday wrap segment here, and uh, I'm one of the co-hosts, David Shi. Um, as always, we love to chat everything, uh, investment assets, um, you know, uh, properties, shares, and everything. But uh, in essence, we have, um, you know, we, we kind of have each um, at a different level, you know, like John and I are more geared towards property. You know, each of us have different uh, different angles and different aspects. And I thought it's just, it's always interesting on Friday to have three minds clashing together, um, seeing what uh, what sort of spark that comes out from it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, treat it as a three guys having a bit of a chat on uh, what's been happening in the week and uh, what do we see the markets doing and what can we, uh, what, how should we interpret things? So, um joining me today we've got john here with me uh john how are you doing i'm very well uh david uh, nice to see you i think uh, unfortunately without jazz it's more like one and a half minds today you, oh. you know I, I would be the half in that uh oh, that oh, instance but, i was gonna uh, say i was the half mate oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh everything's good uh, going into the second month of lockdown um you know, and my day involves wearing pajamas, eating Doritos, and watching the Olympics all day. Generally speaking, I'm glad I'm not I seeing you in pajamas at the moment, though. <laughs> so. Yeah, always wear a suit jacket on a Zoom call, though. That's what I. Uh, oh, I know, I know. I was going to say, you know, your your dressing code has definitely deteriorated a bit over the last two weeks or so, but uh, <laughs> that's good. We all have to cope, right? Um, but yes. yeah, the. The COVID situation is unfortunately not getting any better. You know, we're seeing what yesterday is like a 200 new cases a day. And I mm. think today just dropped a little bit down to about 170 again. So it's, so it's well, in a sense, it's good, but the numbers does fluctuate. And from a longer term trend, it's a bit like property. It's going up, which is uh, concerning, to be honest. That's not the type of numbers that we want to see going up. Um, and um, as such, you know, you and I are both in Sydney and we've just had an extension of lockdown now to the end of August uh, with possible further extensions to be put in place. Um, so, you know, for all the Sydney siders like us, um, you know, I think we're just going to have to cope a bit longer, uh, keep holding in there. Uh, we all, we all got to do our bit, stay at home, don't go out unless you absolutely need to. I know it sounds cliche, but you know, it's 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 what we need. It's what what we need to do to try to get get over this uh, this round two is uh, is the way I look at it. Especially with a super infectious Delta variant that's that's just lurking around. So, I like but anyway, the, uh, segue mm-hmm. into property. The uh, COVID <laughs> numbers are like property; they go up and down, or just oh, up. <laughs> it is it is a good segue, don't you? Because um, you know, I, I think funny enough, um, we want to we want to touch on a few topics today, which is in relation to the unintended consequence of COVID and the property prices, uh, in a, in a sense. And um, you know, one one of the things that uh, I guess uh, one of the articles that's been published by Dr. Andrew Wilson from My Housing Market is uh, is is with the fact that the sellers are abandoning hot housing markets as lockdowns bite. So, you know, with with the COVID situation now, like we mentioned in previous weeks we are seeing a shortage of listings and John's got some more data there as well that he can share with us in particular Sydney data. But uh, in essence, um, you know, from Dr. Andrew Wilson's uh, graph, um, he's basically saying we are looking at a negative 2.5% annual listing reduction in comparison to last year where we were. And if we look at about a month ago, uh, that was about a 25% more 
annual listings. So this is number of listings for sale, 25% more than, than what we had last year. So that was so that's a significant decrease if you think about the numbers, right? From a 25% increase to a negative 2.5%. That's what that's equivalent of what one in four properties that gets withdrawn, uh, in essence, in, in supply. Mm. In, in that instance. So yeah, it's, it, it's definitely an unintended, unintended consequence of uh, COVID-19 and because of the lockdown, I, I would say. But um, I mean, John, how do you interpret this data? What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, you talked quite interestingly about um, properties that are being withdrawn. Now, when we look at uh, auction clearance rate data, mm-hmm. um, the auction clearance rates can't distinguish between, between a withdrawn property and a passed-in property. And so what happens is when a, when a, a lockdown comes along and uh, the seller decides to maybe reschedule the, um, uh, the, the auction. auction or take it off the market to pre- briefly put it back on the market, it makes it look like the property passed in and it, makes, it plays games with the way you perceive buyer, uh, buyer demand and seller supply. But actually, they've just taken it off the market and it's been withdrawn. So um, I said last week that we're going to see Clear, uh, we're going to see uh, clear auction clearance rates drop, but that it's not going to mean anything because uh, because what, what happens during a lockdown is not that the market goes bad, but that the market stops. It's like a, it's a cessation of market functioning rather than, uh, rather than the market turning bad. So uh, the dynamic between passed in versus withdrawn properties is... Um, it's very interesting. And, uh, you know, Dr. Andrew Wilson had some great data this week about the supply of properties. Uh, the supply of new listings nationally has dropped by 21% over the last week, 21% over the last week nationally. Um, and it's uh, 2.5% lower than this time last year. The, the number of listings is the lowest since the first week of January when everyone's on holidays and no one's mm listing properties. So this has had a a huge impact on the supply. Um, Now, if they're national figures, if you take Sydney data, it starts to look a lot, a lot worse. So it's a sea of red in terms of the number of new listings. And if you really focus on the the Western parts of Sydney, in the West, the the number of listings is down 43%. In the Southwest, it's 65% fewer listings. And in the Canterbury-Bankstown area, it's 63% fewer listings. So it's a, it's a, it's a collapse in the volume or, or, or the, the size of the property market. Now, th- this is a really important dynamic in real estate, that when things go bad, uh, in the stock market, when things go bad, people sell and the market plunges. And that doesn't happen in real estate. I mean, we have markets that go up and down, but you never get, um, you never get the market pl- plummeting. Here's the reason. Supply declines always absorb the shock of a bad economy. And the reason for that is that 70% of the property market is owner-occupiers and only 30% of the, the property market is an investor market. Um, whereas if you compare this to Apple stock or BHP stock, almost all of that stock is investor stock. Like no one needs to live in their BHP shares. Um, so <laughs> not sure so, you can. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you never know. Uh, can your BHP, BHP shares hug you? Can they love you? 
<laughs> uh, no, but um, so so that's a really important dynamic that people seem to get wrong every time that there's a there's a like a recession or a bet you know. Uh, that only 30% of the real estate market is for investors. So when there's a sell-down, at the most, there's only a sell-down of that 30% of the market. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so supply shocks are a su- supply declines are a shock absorber. And what we might see, you used the, the right word before, which is unintended consequences. The unintended consequences of the COVID lockdown is probably going to be to pour fuel on the fire of high property prices. It's going to make stock very hard to get. It's going to prolong low interest rates. My guess is uh, my guess is that when the lockdown ends, we're going to see a resumption in the boom in property markets. And the, the boom in the property market was probably in the process of sorting itself out. We've probably just thrown some more fuel on the fire. And my guess is... Um, prices are going to continue to rise in the short term at least. It's exactly the same situation as what Melbourne had last year, right? During that prolonged lockdown, basically no, very little to no stock was transacting. But then as soon as it started to ease, that was that suppressed demand that just that, yep. just, that just came out, right? And it pushed the Melbourne numbers, it pushed the Melbourne property figures uh, to, to the next level. So yeah, I think we are, we are, we are definitely going to see it down that path uh, with Sydney numbers as well. And just depends on how long the lockdown is going to be this time, right? We already, I'm losing days in terms of how long we've been in lockdown, <laughs> but I have a feeling that it's still a long way to go. So the longer that the lockdown is, um, the more suppressed the demand will be and therefore the stronger rebound it will be when, you know, ultimately uh, we become, I mean, we, we're back to COVID normal is the way I look at it. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We're, we're, we're still in a situation as well where, for the time being at least, and, and yields so, sort of sort themselves out over time, but we're mm. still in a situation where in most parts of Sydney and certainly in most parts of Australia, it's still cheaper to buy than to rent. And until that stops being the case, there's going to be a lot of buyer activity. Mm. So it's not like there's no pain in the market. There's pain in the market, but it's being felt by landlords. Um, who are taking a haircut on their income. Uh, but, but the property market, as long as it's cheaper to buy than it is to rent, uh, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of incentives for yep. buyers to stay in the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And predominantly, it's always been that own occupy activity. That's, that's what the government wants driving most of the transactions anyway, right? So that's why from, from RBA's perspective and APRA, they're always monitoring closely in terms of what the, um, what the investor mortgage activities are, because that gives them a good indication on, okay, well, are the, how, how active are the investors in the current market? Do we need to put a lid on it? Um, is it overheating? Are they, you know, are they spurting the growth to the next level? Whereas when it's own occupiers, you know, predominantly are the one that's transacting, then um, it's a natural organic growth, basically. So, uh, which is what, what people will probably want. Mm. Well, APRA, APRA said that, that's interesting that you say that because it's quite right that the the market's driven by owner occupiers. A lot of first home buyers who mm-hmm. suddenly suddenly become you know it's it's affordable to buy. Well, we'll come back to affordability, but uh, <laughs> but, but temporarily and for this brief window of time, it's again cheaper to buy than to rent uh, until that stops being the case. Yes, um, and at the moment, uh, APRA have signaled that they will intervene into the market when investors become thirty percent 
of the um, of the property market. And while investors are slowly coming back, uh, they are still in the low 20%. So there's no justification at this moment in time for APRA to intervene into the property market. They probably won't need to with the uh, uh, disruption of the lockdown, which will clearly take some steam out uh, in the short term. But uh, yeah, so long as this um, the, the upswing in the property market's been driven by owner occupiers, it's in a sense the regulators getting what they what they asked yep. for. Yeah, they're going to stay put in essence. And um, you know, the, I guess that's a, also a good segue in terms of talking about the house price heat map because um, you know, like at the moment, uh, up to what twenty fifth of July um, so far, we've um, you know we we're essentially putting a bit of a lid on the on the price growth where. You know, beforehand, we're talking about, uh, I remember this is back in about um, April, May, you know, we're looking at what a 4%, 3 to 4% monthly increase um, of in, in the housing price figures, right? And, um, you know, that's not to say that even though the, the current lockdown is, um, uh, is having impact, but the numbers are still strong, um, surprisingly strong, given the number of I guess the number of available listings that's for people to, you know, and still with a lot of demand to go through. So, um, John, do you want to? Can you run us through the the highlights of the uh, of the house price heat map listings for us for cities? Yeah, absolutely. I've only got the uh, couple, you know, couple of the key capitals here, yeah, but um, but weekly the property markets in Sydney, uh, Brisbane, and Adelaide are moving up at 0.4 of a percent, so half a percent mm-hmm. uh, per per week, uh, which means that the property market is still moving up at between one and a half to 2%. That's, that's a pretty quick click for a market that's been in lockdown for four weeks, in Sydney at least, and in, partially in Melbourne. Um, so the month-to-date numbers, as of the beginning of this week, uh, is Sydney up at 1.6%, so probably finish the month up 2%, mm-hmm. Melbourne up 1%, Brisbane up 1.6%, Adelaide up 1.4% and Perth up 0.2%. So, uh, you know, the, the market up until now was going up between 25 to 3%. Yep. Now it's moving up at about 15 to 2% per month. That's still about three times what the long-term 40-year average is for, uh, for property price appreciation. The thing that surprises me here is that Perth isn't, isn't really participating according to the data. I don't know if I necessarily believe that because what, what we're hearing, what we're seeing is, is that Pro- Perth is doing really well. Yes. Uh, I know that you were you're chatting to a Perth buyer's agent recently, you sort of confirmed that. Yep. And also Perth, there's a bit of a commodity market boom. So you, you kind of see that go hand in hand with mm. real prices. So uh, surprised to see that not, um, not a bit higher. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but yeah, the bull market's still intact people. And um you, you, I guess you know we go through the data, but you should never expect real any any price to go up in a straight line. There's going to be corrections, and and it, that that's just part of the part of being involved in in, in as an investor. Yeah, I guess uh, just to just to add on to the Perth numbers, um, you know, yeah, you're right. I was talking to David Hall from Momentum Wealth, who's a buyer's agent in uh, in uh, in Perth, and. Um, he certainly, on, from the on-the-ground observation, it certainly wasn't reflecting um, what those numbers are. You know, the, the, the key problem they have is, is a key shortage of supply stock, uh, similar to the rest of Australia to an extent, really. 
Um, but, um, you know, because there's so little stock that's available and as soon as it comes up available, strong competition comes up and get it snatched up. Um, however, unlike Sydney, where predominantly it's an auction clearance, auction market, you know, you get the results straight on, you know, auctions on Saturday, you, we basically get the results on Saturday night uh, or, you know, Monday, Tuesday. So it's a very quick turnaround in terms of the information update. Whereas Perth will probably have to go through that 60 day type of settlement period. So there's been a delay in terms of the actual figures uh, being reflected as such as well. So, um, you know, that Perth not catching up at the moment, certainly not a true reflection of what's happening on the ground. Um, it's just, I, I suspect it's more of an information slash data delay because this is ultimately a lag indicator. Um, and it just comes down to the, the nature of the transaction, whether it's through auction, whether it's through private treaty, how long the settlement period is, when does the data gets updated? Um, that's probably driving it more uh, on, on that perspective. But certainly Perth is going very, very strong at the moment. You know, we have we are having a commodity boom. You know, all the, all the mining companies, didn't they, didn't they have put their, uh, I think they, they're giving their dividends yesterday and, you know, like almost all of them's giving <laughs> heaps of dividends. So, you know, right. gives, yeah. a, gives a bit of indication in terms of how those mining companies are doing uh, so far, thanks to the China mining boom that, uh, yeah, that's uh, that demand there has. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. As you, as you correctly pointed out, surprised to see the figures are so strong, even though during lockdown, especially Sydney, um, you know, Melbourne's, Melbourne's uh, month to date is 1%. And, you know, they're not even impacted as severe as Sydney, whereas, you know, we're pretty much in a what, lockdown 3.5, free slash 3.5, but we're still seeing a 1.6 month to date. Um, yep. And a 0.4 last week as well. So, um, you know, that's that's uh, incredible results, I've got to say. So in a, in, in a lockdown environment. Yeah, I mean, the way I kind of see, you know, Warren Buffett used to talk about Mr. Market. Um, and the way I kind of see a market that is simultaneously in lockdown and with zero interest rates, it's sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, the your foot's on the, on the floor of the accelerator and you've got the handbrake up at the same time. <laughs> like, it, it's like a drunk who's completely discombobulated. Like, it's so confusing it's it's so uh, irrational it's all these things and the market's trying to figure figure out what to do in the end what will happen is uh, you know it'll just show up in a couple of weird erratic things like higher prices and spurts and mm. lower supply by 60 percent all these weird things again it's like uh, a teenager in the car with his foot on the on the gas and the handbrake up doing donuts and and it you know, re luckily, real estate's a pretty stable sort of asset class because it's a very strange macro environment to, mm. that, that we are in at the moment. That's true, definitely. So, all right, well, that's good. I think we've covered a few pieces there. Um, shall we? Uh, shall we talked about? Uh, I guess one of the one of the main topics that you and I thought would be quite interesting to touch on for today. Again, uh, for property investors, and uh, John, this is certainly not the first time, it won't be the last time that you get asked this question. <laughs> so how do you build a property portfolio? You know, some, a lot of people ask, I mean, they, they ask you and they, I think some of them do also ask me, how do I get from zero to 10 properties, um, you know, rather than being just a norm of getting 
you know, two properties, uh, which is pretty much, uh, I think it's about 75% of, of those investors uh, probably hold about two, 70 to 75%. I don't have the accurate data in front of me, but that sounds, um, sounds about that level. Um, so in other words, you know, as, as an investor, and we all know that two properties not going to be enough for you to retire on. So how do you break into the multi-property uh, league, I should say, <laughs> probably the multi-property league club? Um, how do you get into that? So I thought that would be a, an interesting topic for us to, to touch on and share our thoughts uh, in terms of uh, building a property for portfolio uh, in the current market. So look, I think so. I'm, you know, I think listeners will probably know that I'm a mortgage broker. Well, so I look at finances. John is a buyer's agent, so he look at the actual property selection strategy side of things. Um, so I thought let's have a chat about that today, John, from a finance and property selection slash strategy perspective. Uh, and again, this is generic because everyone's situation is going to be unique and different, um, but. From touching on from a finance, from a selection, from a property selection, and from a strategic perspective, what should an investor be looking at uh, in order to be able to potentially not be able to grow from zero to ten in one go, but over the longer haul? How do we do that? So, um, what about if I start a bit on the finance side? So I can let John. I can let John take a little breathing space and, <laughs> and think through. <laughs> Um, so look, the main thing, the main thing on the lending side is um, the, the things that you can control and things that you can't control. Basically, the things that you can't control is like, for example, the credit environment, right? Like the macro topic side of things, um, the assessment rate, as an example, right? So you know, if when we look back at 2017, 2018, people want to buy, however, people can't borrow money in that instance. So you know, in that type of environment, it is very, very difficult for you to be able to grow property portfolio. Whereas in today's environment, the assessment rate has dropped significantly. Um, you know, we're talking about from a 7% assessment rate down to probably about 5 point something percent assessment rate. So it's a lot easier to take money out from the banks. Um, and therefore, it's a lot easier to be able to build multi-property portfolio in the current credit environment. However, I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is um, the credit environment always changes. Um, you know, it, it's just like property cycles. Sometimes there will be good times and sometimes there will be bad times. So that's something that you cannot control, unfortunately, and that will definitely have an impact in terms of whether you can, how many you can buy in one go. Um, and it also relates to, you know, whether you can continuously take equity out from the property and be able to continue invest further, okay? So that's one thing. The second most important thing would probably be looking at your income and your finance situation. So, you know, a lot of people looking at, um, you know, have people having multiple properties uh, in the current market, you either need to have a really strong income source. So, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, um, let's say about $100,000. That's probably a median median type of average Australian household um, or Australian income in that instance. But $100,000 today is not going to get you very, very far, especially when you've got a mortgage to pay, your home loan to pay. Um, on top of that, you know, you have to look at your living expenses and you got to look at your, your good debts and bad debts. So the good debts are obviously your investment loans. 
um, the bad debts are like your car loans, your personal loans, your credit cards and all that stuff. So how do you, so, so in order to, to continue to grow further, you want to be able to maximize your income. So, you know, whether that's try to try to push it up as much as you can get a second job, um, that kind of stuff, because income ultimately is, is the key determinant of how you, how far you can go in essentially building that property portfolio. And at the same time, minimizing, minimizing the, um, the, the, uh, the bad debt that you have. So reduce your credit card limits, you know, clear out your personal loans, um, you know, don't take out car loan and that kind of stuff. So that's all basic finances for you to be able to continue to go further. Think of it this way, you know, the, the banks calculate your, um, your borrowing capacity by looking at the income, subtract all the expenses and all the ongoing commitments and whatever's left over, you know, the higher the figure it is, the more borrowing capacity you have. So obviously you want to continue to increase your income to the level where you can continue to build your property portfolio and at the same time minimize all that bad debt or clear them out as much as you can. So that will actually get you to go further. Um, so I throw out two, John, I thought, you know, for change, I'll hand over to you to see a few points from your side in terms of property selection and strategy. No, th thank you. Yeah, look, look. Um, just to set it up as well, I want to reiterate something you said at the beginning, which is that uh, I think the, the the exact number is that only six, uh, half a percent of investors get to six properties. Okay. So okay. if if you've got multiple properties, let's say if you've got let's say you've got five properties, or let's say you've got ten, yep. you're in a very small cabal of uh, of property investors. Most people get to one. Mm -hmm. And then, like elite investors, get to two, right? So, so if you're at, if you're at six to ten properties, you're uh, in a in a minuscule proportion of investors. So, so it's it's not easy, and not many people do it. Um, and you know, I was speaking to a prospect the other night who kind of asked me this question, and, and the reason was that anyone can buy a property, and most people can buy two, but but no one you can't live off that, and that's not going to change your life in a consequential way. So. I've got, there are two strategies that I would suggest can get you there. Um, the first strategy is called pairing. Um, and the second strategy is called flipping. And they're generally the way. Now, the reason for that is that you've got, because finance is the most important part of being able to get there. So well before you speak to a buyer's agent, you've got to speak to a mortgage broker. And that, that is the key to getting from one to 10. It's the finance. And it's harder now. In the old days, you used to be able to accumulate uh, real estate based on equity, capital growth, and you could recycle the debt. Can't do that anymore. So there's this big emphasis now on income. David, you spoke about that brilliantly. Get a second job, all that stuff. But the two, the two uh, strategies that I've suggested are a way to sort of uh, leverage both the income and the equity within the property strategy itself. So the first strategy is called pairing. This is when you buy, uh, in a sense, two properties at a time or two properties in fairly close uh, proximity to each other that have completely different characteristics. In particular, one would be a growth property and the other would be an income-producing property. To give you an idea, you might say um, you might buy one property in Brisbane and another property in Sydney, and you, you, you've simultaneously got a growth property in the Sydney property and a yielding property in Brisbane. And to the Brisbane people out there, yes, Brisbane grows as well. Um, and Sydney produces income. Uh, but, uh, 
but but they they at, at the point of purchase, you, you're buying two properties with, in the sense, opposing but still complementary characteristics: income and growth, income and growth. Always thinking income and growth. You need the income, whereas you didn't need to. So pairing is one strategy. You're buying an income-producing property and a growth-producing property. Then you repeat that. So then you go to four properties within, say, five years. The flip, flipping's the other way. It's not any now. To be really clear, I've personally never flipped a property, and it's because I don't have the expertise. I'm not particularly handy, so I'm I'm suggesting it as a um, uh, abstract strategy that I know works, but it's not something I have any particular expertise in. Flipping is um, where you buy a dump, you fix it, and you sell it. Now, you, the reason you're doing this is because you need declarable income on your tax return. And if you've got the, the capital gain would appear as income um, if, uh, if, you're, if you're flipping in this period of time that you hold it and so on. Um, now, in the flipping strategy, you want to buy some properties that you hold and buy some properties that you flip. But what you're doing by flipping is keeping um, the bank happy that you've got a high enough income to keep doing this. Um, so buying dumps and then, and then flipping. Now, just a couple of general things. You generally want to buy older properties because you need growth. You generally want to be doing renovations if you're doing, if you're trying to get from one to 10 properties. So generally speaking, renovations are what you're going to need to be doing. Um, and it's going to be slow. Like real estate is the ultimate get rich slow scheme. So you, you're going to need to give yourself at least 10 years to get this done, at least 10 years, maybe 15, 20 years, and just have the patience to set a goal and then stick with it. So you're not going to be able to get to 10 properties quickly. Um, and that's okay. But but they're my two strategies, pairing and flipping. Really good. And I think, uh, you know, commonly, I think if you talk about flipping, I know that beforehand there was a lot of people who buy dumps, live in there, do it up, and then and then flip it. That way they avoid capital gains tax as well while living there as well, right? Yeah. So in an upswing market, it can be very, very profitable, um, you know, uh, if you're quite handy yourself uh, in, that, in that instance. But, you know, it's more of a timing uh, to a degree as well in terms of how much profit you can get out of it. Um, and totally agree with the pigeon pairing side of things you know i think when i was purchasing i was certainly looking at uh, this is in brisbane so i was looking at uh two two cash flow properties versus one more of a capital growth type of property so um and that and that also the thinking of that is also to safeguard myself from any future interest rate rises so that way you know at the end of the day we're talking about holding out the property for as long as you can because that's Essentially, for the first for year one, from year one to year ten of holding a property, you probably won't see much profit at all. You know, as a matter of fact, there won't be much growth potentially, not growth, but um, it's the compounding effect from probably potentially year ten to year twenty that's really going to create that wealth afterwards, right? So um, that's why uh, that's why. So I mean, for us at least, it's so important to try to actually get um, um, hold the property in the long run. Um, now, I've got one more thing to add uh, in touching on about your equity releases because a lot of my customers does come to me and, and say, look, I want to execute the strategy of buying something now. I want to take out the equity and I want to be able to go again in six months' time, something like that. Um, I mean, it's not impossible in today's environment, but again, it all relies on your income. 
when you take out equity, people, for some reason, they, they mostly think that it's free cash. <laughs> for some reason, for some reason. They thought, okay, well, if I can show that the property has grown in value, then banks will give me the money. Well, they would give you the money if you can demonstrate to them that you can actually take out that additional equity, which is actually additional borrowing. So let's say, for example, today you're wanting to take out $50,000 from equity release from, from your home. Um, and, you know, the, the actual process of that is, you know, you do an application to the bank, you show them that your paces, you give them all that financial information, they do the assessment and they say, can you afford to take out another $50,000 loan on top of your current loan? If you can, then sure, they will probably understand. They want, then they ask the next question is, what are you going to use the $50,000 for? Okay. As long as the purpose meets it fine, then, and, and, you know, you can service that extra bit of debt then great, they'll give you that money. But what most investors fail to understand is when they get to probably be IP2, IP3, when they're already loaded with a bit of debt, at that point in time, they become more in the state of um, equity rich, but cash flow poor. Uh, in other words, their income is only enough to be able to support all the debt they have throughout the acquisition of IP1 to IP3. And they now say, oh, well, the property has grown quite a bit. I want to be able to take out a bit of equity. But if your income hasn't actually gone up corresponding to the amount of debt that you have racked up, you will not be able to release the equity in order to be able to go further. So, so I think that's why John mentioned a very important point. In today's world, you're not going to be able to go from zero to 10 property in one go unless you're on a very significant income. We're talking about what 0.5% of the population that can actually do that, right? Otherwise, it's going to be a slow and steady gain. You're going to buy maybe two or three, four at max in one go. Then you got to start reducing a bit of debt and work on your income, basically. Once your debt position has come down, once your income has gone up, you can then either use your cash savings again to actually purchase the next one, the next one, or take a bit of equity out and again, purchase the next one and next one and that stuff. So that's just, I just thought I'll add that on as well. No, I, I, it was good. I was uh, putting my thumbs up as you were as you were chatting. I, I thought that was great. And look, there's there's multiple. There are multiple strategies. Uh, you know, there are probably people listening to this and saying, you know, thinking to themselves, what about commercial property? Mm. There, there's tons of tons of property strategies, and they're just a couple that um, yeah. that yeah. work. I, I don't see how you could do it without renovation. That's an important, going to be an important aspect. But again, finance is important. Here's a question for you, Dave. Um, does it get easier or harder? So let's say, that, you know, you save up uh, for the first property, you've saved 20%, let's say mm -hmm. you save $100,000 or $80,000. Is, is buying the first property harder or easier than buying the fourth property? And I know it, the answer is it depends, but what's your... Uh, what, what's your it depends. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about specific finance situations here, but um, look, it's always going to be harder when it gets to the later end, the tail end of the of the investment debt because of the fact that, as I mentioned before, your income growth is never going to be the same growth as the the amount of debt that you're going to rack up when you uh, during the accumulation phase, right? So, imagine someone just been buying like free. 500k investment properties borrowing at $400,000 each, right? So that's 1.2 mil debt. Whereas their income in, in that duration of acquisition, which could be six to 12 months, may not have changed. 
So in other words, they would have hit the ceiling. They would have hit their borrowing capacity ceiling when they go towards the end. And also, it's a good point because um, usually when we had to get to that level, you got to look at non-banks because you know when you're when you're servicing when your income is already started to run out, you're not going to be able to service with any other majors like the ANZs, the CBAs, you know, the Suncorps, for example. They have a very strict rule in terms of assessing your serviceability. However, um, when you run out of servicing with those levels, um, you've pretty much only got the non-banks to turn to. They will be the one that will still be able to continue to give you that finance. And when you exhaust on that, well, you've really got nowhere else to go uh, at that point in time. And so you don't have a lot of choices when you get to potentially that later tail end, unless your income has significantly taken a turn. You know, maybe you started your business, maybe you've um, you know, you're taking on a second job or, you know, you took on a contract type of role, which boosts your income by 20, 30% or even 50%, which could happen. In that case, then sure. Then what we can do is, you know, can bring, if you already got properties that's in the non-bank area, we can actually bring them back up to the top level, like, you know, the major bank level and that kind of stuff. So, and then we'll be able to continue to grow again and, and by, by, you know, putting, putting properties against the non-banks. So it keeps recycling that way. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like that. Oh, look, I'd, I'd add one thing as well. If you ever see someone with ten properties, mm-hmm. um, they're they're at like chapter twenty of their own personal book. That's true. Um, and I guarantee you that person who, who owns 10, 15, 20 properties, I guarantee you that they a went through some really tough times and they almost lost it all. And two, I bet that they spent a couple of years eating baked beans on toast. And living in a living in a property with um, without a functioning bathroom uh, during a renovation or something like that. So yeah, yeah d- don't look at the finished article uh, and and assume it was easy. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, it wasn't. Never. I've got a question for you as well, John. Um, people keep on saying you need a lot of properties, but do you really need up to ten properties to be able to live to be able to live the life that you want? And I know the answer is going to be depends. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah that's right. But um, you know, I was just curious to know uh, what's the what's the benchmark to be able to work out how many properties that you actually need to be able to get that get that lifestyle that you want. Such a good such a good point. You know, we probably should have talked about it at the beginning that the number of properties isn't quite so important as perhaps their value and uh, in relation to your goals. But here's um, I, I will answer the, the question directly. So it doesn't really matter the number of properties you could. It, it matters if you're getting the unencumbered income that you want. Um, the way to the way to sort of figure it out, and these numbers change over time as interest rates change. But generally speaking, um, there's something called the rule of 25, and what this says is you decide how much income you want to retire on, and you multiply that amount by 25, and that's the amount of unencumbered assets you need to generate the income that you want. So. Let's say you decide I want $100,000 a year. Uh, you need, you times 100,000 by 25, which is 2.5 million. So you need 2.5 million of debt-free real estate to generate the $100,000. Now, it'd probably be more because I think that assumes a 4% yield and mm. I don't know if you can get that anymore. Uh, but, um, but generally speaking, <laughs> decide how much income you want, multiply it by 25, maybe multiply it by 30 now. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that's how you'd... Um, you'd get there. Yeah, nah, spot on. And I think in, in that instance as well, I guess one of my, one of my points being that um, um, don't, 
don't don't have the mentality of keeping up with Joneses, right? It's not a competition to say, hey, you know, John down the street's got like eight properties, um, and I, you know, I, I wanted to be able to do the same with him as well. But each person's individual circumstances are, are different. You know, you don't. Uh, when speaking to clients, I a lot of times I find that they don't actually necessarily need that number of properties, right? They're already in a great position where they potentially just need to acquire one or two or even three more assets. Um, and just pay that down. And then that's enough. That's enough for them to be able to live a very comfortable life from that point onwards, right? So, um, so as you know, as John, you mentioned, it's not about the number of properties. It's all about that unencumbered income that you're seeking. And property is just a vehicle at the end of the day to be able to get you there. So it's one of many vehicles too. Yeah, so one of those. Yeah. One yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, anything else to add, John? No, just um, go go Aussies. You know, lo- loving the Olympics. I think we're uh, how at, many medals at, are we now? We we're at nine gold, Ooh. and uh, last Olympics, the total amount over the two weeks we got were, were eight eight gold. So eight gold. Doing... So we already exceeded what we had last time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So uh, go Aussies, um, and um, yeah, just keep 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 your uh, eye on the. Um, Real estate market, but you know, tune out the white noise as well. There's always going to be there's always going to be a data point, but um, yeah. we real estate investors think long term, don't we? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, uh, there goes another episode today. Uh, thank you for tuning in as always. And uh, if you got any questions for us, for me, for Jazz, for John, um, Spark Your Fire Podcast at gmail.com is where you can go to. Um, otherwise. Stay safe, keep safe, and um, we'll see you guys again next week.